This is a treat for me, because um, I'm such a, a fan of Eddie, and it feels like a privilege to interview a friend in a public forum. So the time frame is, we'll talk for about 35 minutes, give or take five, and then it'll be 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes for other questions, and we'll pull it together. So our time frame is about an hour. So I had the privilege when I first started on B Street, Eddie came to visit on B Street. He was just becoming the director of Camp Ramah in Ojai. It's the first time I met Rabbi Feinstein. And he said, you know, if you and your wife want and children, come to camp. We want to connect synagogues to camp. Be our guest. Come and spend a week. So as long as Rabbi Feinstein and Nina were at camp, we came for one week every summer. And I would follow Eddie around in the afternoons, on Shabbos afternoon, he would give each Ada, each group, popsicles mm -hmm. and a story. And I would follow him to hear his stories. So I love hearing your stories. And your name is Yitzchak. We ended last night with We Love Torah. Tell us a Yitzchak story as Yitzchak. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what do you want to know? A Bible story, a story Torah, but with a little Midrashic quality. A Yitzchak story. I don't have a Yitzchak. What can you make? Like, what can you make? <laughs> Tell something. All right, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. You gotta, uh, gotta give him a moment to be creative. Yitzchak. Yitzchak? Yeah. Yitzchak, tell us your story. A, a Jew goes camping? Go no, ahead, that's Yitzchak. our right, it's a fiction, right? <laughs> Not at CSP. And he wakes up in the morning, and the sky is blue, and the sun is shining, and the trees are fragrant, and he decides he's going to thank God for this beautiful day. So he puts on his tallest film, and he begins to pray and say, thank God for this day. And out of the forest comes a big, hungry, grizzly bear. And the bear roars, and the man says, I'm going to die. And he makes a prayer, says, Rabbi Shalala, master of the world, make a miracle. Make the bear Jewish. Sure enough, the bear stands up next to him. The bear reaches into his pocket, puts on his yarmulke, <laughs> and begins to pray. And the man is about to say, thank you, God, for saving my life. When he overhears the bear saying, Hamoid <laughs> Silechem, <laughs> That's the story of how Yitzchak was saved by the ram. How, how was that? Was that okay? <laughs> <laughs> so what is your favorite story in the Torah? Last night, again, we, we were left. This is the, pre, the transition from last night that it's good that you serve the Torah, but it's, it's even better if you love the Torah. Right. What's your favorite story? Tell us your favorite Bible story. My favorite Bible story? Yeah. I don't know. I like all the Bibles. I like, there's a lot of stories in the Bible I like. What yeah. comes to mind? No, I, I, liked, I taught the first morning. We, I taught the, uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So I, I think that's a very powerful story. It's a very powerful moment. For you, that, def that moment? Talk about what the significance is of that moment for you as a Jew. That is the epitome of chutzpah. 
And you now, should know that. use the word. Yeah, go ahead. You should know that the current book that Rabbi Feinstein is writing is called Chutzpah. So, yeah, Chutzpah. Should be out, out later so, in the year. So that that story. What is that story? How does that story grab you? Well, we use the word chutzpah to mean sort of, you know, arrogance or temerity or pride. There's another meaning of the word chutzpah. The word chutzpah is actually older than Yiddish. It's actually Talmudic. And the Talmud describes that story as chutzpah klape shamaya, a man who stands in front of God and has the chutzpah to say to God, you're doing it wrong, in the name of justice, in the name of conscience. So the idea that, that, that the Jewish tradition would imagine a God who is prepared to accept the challenge from a man and that it imagines that the role of a human being in the world is to stand for what is right, even in the face of God himself. Um, that to me is, is the ultimate expression of the character of the Jewish people. And so that story for you as a Jew means? That story is the ultimate expression of what we are to do in the world. We are to stand for uh, what is right, even in the, fa in the face of any power, including God, God, you know, God himself. That's what the story stands for. And the idea that, that, that you imagine a God that accepts that and, and cherishes that sort of challenge. It's not a God who, it, it's a God who puts it, there's a higher ideal above obedience Obedience is a virtue, but there's a higher ideal above obedience, and that's obedience to God's plan, to obedience to God's dream. A God who is willing to compromise God's own sort of pride in favor of God's dream. I mean, what's amazing, and we, we did this for the first morning, when Abraham is given his commission, God says, hey, Abraha, be a blessing. He doesn't say, be a blessing to me. He says, be a blessing, and then in the next line it says, you will, be, you will bring a blessing to all the peoples of the world. It's, it's, it, obedience to God is not the highest virtue in the Jewish tradition. Obedience to God's dream of a world of oneness is the highest virtue, and the idea that a Jew stands with the chutzpah to stand in front of the world and say, this is what I insist upon. That's the dignity of Jewish life. So in a midrashic sensibility, what do you imagine, imagining now, was God's response as Abraham challenged God? You don't have to imagine it. In the Talmud, there's another story, which you well know, where a, rabbi, a particular rabbi challenges God in the same way, where God comes and makes a decision, and the rabbi comes back and says, no, loba shamayimi, it's not in heaven, it's, it's in bava metziah. And then th there's a wonderful postscript to that story. Another man challenges God. And in the postscript to that story, it imagines as a mystic named Rabbi Natan, Rabbi Nathan, who has tea with Elijah the prophet every Tuesday, right? And, 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 and he asks Elijah, what did God do at the moment when Rabbi Yoshua challenges God? And, and, and the answer is, he says, he laughed with joy and he said, It's the God who is the good parent. You're a parent of teenagers. I'm a parent of kids who have grown up. There's a, there comes a moment when your kid challenges you, not out of arrogance and not out of belligerence and not out of hostility, that comes too. But, <laughs> but the kid challenges on the basis of what you taught the kid, the base, on the ideals and ethics and virtues that you taught the kid. And the kid says to you, you're better than that, Pop. And when, the, when your kid says to you, I expect more of you because this is what you taught me, you don't, you don't, um, you don't reject that challenge, you cherish it. 
you cherish it. It's the, it's the coming of age of your child. So when Abraham challenges God, I think God smiles and realizes that this is the coming of age of his protege. And that's what Elijah says in that story. Right, it's Huni Banai. It's a, it, the, the parental metaphor is beautiful because it's a, it's a, it's a metaphor about a, a father, a parent, taking pride in the fact that the child has adopted my ideals and stands for them with even more enthusiasm than I do. Now, I started with a question about a story from Yitzchak, because you're named Yitzchak Moshe. Yeah. Who are you named for? Some uncle. Don't know anything <laughs> about him. You're the bar mitzvah boy who doesn't know. No, actually, my mother never wanted to tell me because it was somebody she was ashamed of, I think. Really? Yeah. yeah. And Moshe? Same thing. No, I, I, just, <laughs> God, my mother, I asked my mother a long time ago, like, who my neighbor is? Some uncle. Yeah. <laughs> so... You know, I, I honestly God don't know who I'm named for. So, and do you find you're identified with Yitzchak by having that name? No, not the one who laughs. Well, I like laughter, but that's me. That's not the name. You know. <laughs> so you grew up, and your parents had a bakery. Tell us about growing up at the bakery. My father and mother owned a, Jew, a bakery, kosher bake. When I was, my father's a baker, and we moved from New Jersey in 1960 when I was six. And my dad took a job at Cantor's. Remember Cantor's? Oh, yeah. yeah. So he was a he was a cake baker at Cantor's, uh, and then he had another job. And then they bought it. We lived in Canoga Park, which is as far away from civilization as you can get. Um, and then in, when I was about seven, eight years old, my parents bought a shop uh, in a little shopping center there, and they had this wonderful bakery. And uh, my mother ran the front. My father ran the back. My dad did all the baking with a crew of guys, and my mother ran the front. She ran the retail part of the, the business part of the thing. And it became a community center. It was a place on Sunday morning when they had a number thing at the door. You know, yeah, yeah. There were 100 numbers behind wow. on a Sunday morning. So mom put out a coffee pot and a plate of bagels, and people came, and they schmoozed. <laughs> and it became a place to come and schmooze. And it became a place to know. You knew everybody's gossip. You knew what was going on in everybody's lives. And it was a place to come and to be on a Sunday morning. And, and that sense of community that existed in that place is something that I learned very powerfully because it was really was, it wasn't just a shop, it was a, a gathering place for the community. And it, you know, there was always good things to eat. Every kid got cookies, every grown up got bagels or, 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 or stuff that my father screwed up, you know, they would pass <laughs> up. And uh, it was great. And, you know, but the most powerful thing was that my parents, you know, if you, you know anything about the bakery business, it's brutally hard. You know, dad went to work three o'clock in the morning every day of the week. Uh, except on holidays when he went to work at 1 o'clock in the morning. Mom went to work at 7 in the morning. Um, my I had three younger brothers. I basically learned how to cook because I had to cook for my brothers three, four nights a week. They worked endless hours except Friday night. And my parents were not religious in the sense of being believers. They were deeply Jewish. But they were not sort of from religious people. They were just Jewish. So Friday night, Mom would come home early and she would cook. And Mama didn't cook well, but she cooked a lot. You know, she made up in quantity what she didn't have in quality. Um, yeah, well, she, yeah. And, and, and she, my parents were kibbutzniks at one point. They'd made aliyah to Israel. So everything was served in big plastic bowls. Dad came home early and showered and shaved and took a nap. So he would come to the table. And the rule in my family was whatever you did, you had to be home at the Friday night table. So I had to actually give, I, I was actually a champion debater in high school. Debate tournaments were Friday nights. 
I got to the quarterfinals of the state championship. I had to quit because I said, it's time for Shabbos. And my partner said, we're going to win. I said, I'm going home for Shabbos. <laughs> you know, so I had to leave debate. I couldn't do debate in my senior year because I couldn't get that far into the tournament because I had to get home for Friday night. And the rule was you, could come home, you had to come home Friday night. Two rules. Number one, you could go out afterwards. So my brothers went, you know, with girls and stuff, and I stayed home to study Talmud, you know. <laughs> and, um, and, and the other rule was you could, come, you could bring home anybody you wanted. And, and so I didn't realize until much later, this was my father's sly way of meeting our girlfriends. You know, because dad, we'd bring somebody home. I brought Nina home once, which was a scary thing, you know. So she comes home, and my father said, who are you? And he's Nina Bieber. I said, where do you go to school? She said, I go to Brandeis University. And my father's next question was, and what's your grade average? <laughs> now, you have to know that my wife, Nina, had the highest recorded grade average in the history of the Department of Near Eastern and Jewish Studies to this day. She had 396 grade average, which is as high as it gets. She was a protege of Nachum Sarna, great Bible scholar. And she said to my dad, 3.96 out of four. And guess what my dad said? <laughs> and if you'd studied a little harder, <laughs> I said, Dad! <laughs> you know, but we sat at the table, and what was wonderful is my friends would come to the table. I had all my, even my non-Jewish friends would come to the table because my, you know, my father's a baker, my mother's a bakery lady. She'd serve dinner, and then we'd have a three-course dessert. You know, you'd have fruit and cake and cookies and tea, and Dad would hold court, and he would ask a question. And we sat at the table for hours. We debated the Vietnam War. Remember the Vietnam War? Imagine that America went to a place far, far away to fight a war that was futile and silly. That could never happen again. Um, you know, and then at one point, the American government actually sent me an invitation to join that conflagration. And so the question, seriously, in my house was, as a Jew who has enjoyed the protections of America and the freedoms, do I have an obligation to serve in this war? Or if I believe that the war is wrong, do I have an obligation to resist? That was a family discussion over the table. You know, there's a family, today's Martin Luther King's birthday, there's a family discussion over the table about black people and civil rights and why it was that Jews were so much more successful in finding a place in America than African Americans, than black people. There was a family discussion about Israel. We had these discussions and friends would come from the neighborhood. I mean, literally kids, dozens of kids would come from the neighborhood and would sit at the table and join these discussions with my dad. But the funny thing was I went off to school, I went to UC Santa Cruz. And uh, I'd call home every Friday night, and my, my mother would say, oh, Reed's here. Reed? Reed was my non-Jewish neighbor, <laughs> a southern, southern, southern boy. And he was going to UCLA, and I said, put him on the phone. I said, what the hell are you doing in my house? He said, because they don't do Shabbos in my house. <laughs> he said, oh, got to make Kiddush, got to go. <laughs> so Reed, Bobby Kwan, my Chinese friend, I mean, they all came to my house. They went for years. They would come to my house for Shabbos dinner after I left, because... This was a moment, and so one of the things that I learned, one of the reasons I, you know, I went into the, to the rabbinate was because that table meant something so important to me. It was welcome, it was a place of ideas, it was a place of, of nurturance. That was the model of community that I grew up with that I now apply to the work that I do. So let's talk more about how you chose to become a rabbi. That's how I did it. I, I wanted that table for the rest of my life, right? Now, it was actually an accident that I became a rabbi. I went to UC Santa Cruz, and I majored in a lot of different things. I finished majoring in philosophy. And I moved back to LA after I graduated, and I opened the LA Times to find a job under philosophers. 
plumbers, <laughs> no <laughs> printers, no philosophers. I'd always loved Judaism, and I, you know, I've been attached to Jewish life, but I'd never studied it with the kind of rigor that I learned philosophy with in school. So I wanted to learn Judaism with the same kind of intellectual tools. So I had been going to Camp Ramah since I was a kid, and as a counselor, you and I, you, you were there as a kid, um, got to know Elliot Dorff and Joel Rembaum, who were two great teachers. They were the scholars in residence every summer in camp. And um, I called Elliot and said, I want to learn. I, I don't want to become a rabbi. I, don't want, I just want to learn. I just, he said, come to school. You'll learn. So I came to school, and I finished my first year, and I did very well. This is at the UJ. This is at UJ. It was, AJU was then called UJ. It was on, it was on Sunset Boulevard. And he came to me and he said, look, you're paying all this tuition. If you were in the rabbinical program, your program would be free. So I knew a good deal then. I saw it. <laughs> so I said, hot dog, you know. I didn't intend to do this. I really didn't. I, I, I just wanted to learn. And then we went to Israel together. Nina was with me in Israel. We came back to JTS, and I learned. And then to my chagrin, they wanted to ordain me. So I went across, I don't want to be a rabbi. So I went across the street to Columbia. Columbia's teacher's college was literally outside of our window. It's, it's the Graduate School of Education of Columbia University. It was founded by John Dewey. And I, I decided to study there, and I took a master's degree there so I could be a school principal. And, and in my first job out of, out of school, I went to Dallas, Texas to build a school. Created a day school in yeah, Dallas. Yeah, and then I discovered the most amazing thing. Because I, 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 I was a 60s kid. I didn't feel like I had the authority to speak to people about their lives. But what I did do is I would have school, and every Friday morning, I would tell stories to the kids. And then, you know, three, four, night, three, three, four Fridays a month, I had to give a sermon in the synagogue. And I started to discover, I, one, one, I used to write these wonderful sermons, and then I discovered one week we had, someone had the flu or we weren't feeling well. I didn't get a chance to write a sermon. So Shabbos morning came, or Friday night, I forgot which, comes, and I just, all I did was I told the grown-ups the same story that I told the little kids in the morning. And they loved it. <laughs> And I realized, heck, I could talk to grown-ups. Grown-ups are just kids grown up, you know? <laughs> and if I could tell grown-ups, oh, and the duck said to the rabbi, you know? <laughs> it turns out that, and that's what I've been doing ever since. I discovered that, you know, if you put, and I also discovered, because I'm a 60s kid, you know, that if you get a haircut and put on a coat and tie, you can say any damn fool thing you want. <laughs> and people will listen to you and respect you. So it was like an amazing thing. So I became a rabbi. And you still spend a lot of time in the preschool. You talked about the fourth graders the other day, but you yeah. also talked about little kids. Yeah. Talk about your love of talking to little kids. Well, it's very simple. The first week I'm a rabbi, I'm 26 years old in Dallas, Texas. And Nina, we had bought a house, and there was a supermarket on the corner called Tom Thumb. And Nina said, go get some milk. So I'm walking through the Tom Thumb with two gallons of milk, and there comes a shopping cart. And in the jump seat of the shopping cart is a three-year-old. He's one of the kids from my school. You know, he's heard me tell stories. And the kid sees me, and his eyes open up, and he says, look, Mom, it's God. <laughs> <laughs> so first I made a prayer, like, join the board of directors. <laughs> but no, the kid, here's why the kid's right. Here's why the kid's right. We imagine God to look just like the people who teach us God. We imagine religion to be just like the people who teach us religion. If the people who teach us religion and God are, are, are cold and distant and difficult and academic, that's the God, that's the religion we are 
we are fated to grow up with. And many of us grew up with rabbis, very wise rabbis, who were distant, who were far away, who were unapproachable. I decided at that moment that I wanted to be a rabbi you could, I wanted to be a rabbi you could hug so that the children I would raise would have a God who was close and would have a tradition that brought laughter and warmth and, and, and sensitivity and responsiveness into their lives. So I very carefully crafted my rabbinate because it, it was in the image of the religion that I wanted to convey um, to the community that I teach. Um, and, and I'm very proud that over the years, and I've been at the VBS now for 20 years, I've had kids who've gone through and, and are still close. And the kids who were, were my with me are still close. And, and the religion that they celebrate is a, is a very different one than I grew up with, than you grew up with, because it's a religion that is close and responsive and loving and warm and, and, and available and accessible. And that's the, that's the rabbinate that I practice. So talk a little bit about why you like being a rabbi. <laughs> um, I like the waves. <laughs> I like to be the, the chief rabbi of the surf and sand resort. <laughs> it's just, uh, look, you know, I think that, as I said, as I said over these lectures, I, I think the drama of the Jewish people is a remarkable experience. And I think that God's not done with us yet. I, I really think there's a role for us as a people, and there's a role for our culture in speaking to humanity at this moment in human civilization. Modernity has brought many gifts, but it's also brought many curses. And as a counter to modernity, a dialectic to modernity, Jewish tradition offers a more human way to live your life. I preach to people about why they should make Shabbat. And I never tell them make Shabbos because God said to make Shabbos. I tell them something much more basic. If you don't take a day a week to be yourself, you're crazy. If you don't take a day a week to turn off your cell phone and to speak to the people you love, if you don't take, if you don't have a dinner with candle and wine with the person that you love the most in the world, if you don't, if you don't hold those people close, you gotta be crazy. It's not a matter of because, it's not holy because God said it. God said it because it's holy. And, and I think that Judaism, Jewish life, Torah has something to say to this moment in the evolution of humanity, at this moment of modernity. And I think that it's a very dramatic moment. I mean, that's the tragedy of the Pew Report. It's, just, it's not just that we're losing Jews. We're losing the message of Jewish life. And we're losing people who can articulate that message. And the thing, as I've said over and over again, is the reason we're losing it is because we're speaking the wrong language. Because instead of speaking a language of personal meaning, we speak a language of collective responsibility. Collective responsibility was the right language for much of Jewish history, but not at this moment. It's gotta be a different language. And so we have to train the Jewish people to speak a different language. But to be, to be an advocate and to be a participant in this time of the world, I think is very powerful. So what, has surpri what surprised you about the role of rabbi that you didn't anticipate? I was scared out of my mind. I, I'll tell you a funny story. It's not a funny story, it's a serious story. The first time I ever did a funeral, I was 26 years old. The rabbi that I was working for went on vacation. He would do that a lot, by the way. <laughs> Lovely man, but he, he needed his vacation. So here I am, all by myself. I'm the school director, and I'm the associate rabbi of this very large synagogue. And a patriarch in the community died. Right? Remember the Stahl family? It was Sam Stahl's, it was, it was a, a, a Stahl's father. Not Sam Stahl, it was a, their cousins. But it was his father. And uh, patriarch <clears throat> dies. And they call me and they say, we need you to do the funeral. And I'd never done a funeral. I've been at a funeral. I've never done a funeral before. 
They taught me in school, you know, so you go look up your notes, you know. And I'm 26, I put on my little suit, and I say to the family, I'll meet you at your house, and I get in a car, and I drive over to the house, and I park, you know, like a half a block away, and I'm shaking. Like, what do you say to people that have just lost their father? What do you say to, to, a, to a widow who's just lost her husband of 60 years? What do, you, what do you say to people? And I'm sitting in the car, like, sitting there, saying to myself, why didn't I go to law school, <laughs> you know? <laughs> when one of the kids from the family knocks on the window, they're going, Rabbi, you coming in? You know, I was like, oh, shoot. You know, so I get out, and I got my little book, and I walk up the steps, and I enter the house, and I, this is a big living room, you know, and the whole family, the, the widow and the kids and the grandkids and the great-grandchildren and the cousins and friends, there must have been like 75 people in this room, and I sit in the middle. They give me a seat in the middle, right? And they're all waiting for me to say something wise. And I have no idea what I'm doing. There's a line in the book of Psalms, as you know. It says, Shomer Pitaim Adonai. God watches out over idiots. <laughs> and it's true, by the way. Because out of my mouth came a question which I didn't know I knew. I said, tell me about your dad. And they said, well, what do you want to know? I said, where was he born? Where did he come from? They expected me to talk to them. And I simply said, tell me about your dad. How did he come to Texas? Came from Europe, landed at Ellis Island. How did he come to Texas? At a certain point in the conversation, I turned to the widow, this older woman who's sitting here, and she's you know, just grieving. And I said, Mrs. Stahl, how did you meet your husband? And all of a sudden, the weeping stops. And she looks up, and there's this little curl of a smile on her face, and she said, his brother had a Packard. <laughs> a Packard? She said, that's a car, a nice car. He borrowed his brother's car, and he picked me up from school. And he took me out. He took me out. And one of the kids said, and then what happened? You were born nine months later. <laughs> Do I have to explain it? <laughs> And, and what was amazing at that point is that someone went and got some pictures, and they got their wedding picture. You know, it was just taken in the 30s, you know? Or the, you know and, and they pass around, and one of the great-granddaughters looks and says, Grandma, you were hot, <laughs> you know? Like, she'd only seen the woman as an old lady, you know? She never imagined that once Grandma was a young, vibrant, beautiful. And suddenly, the stories begin to pour out. And I realized, that's what I'm there to do. I'm not there to like dump wisdom on these people. I'm there to elicit you know, their memories. And I had, I, and you feel this enormous power to bring comfort. So we had the funeral. And all I did at the funeral is introduce members of the family. I said, I want you to speak about your dad. You, you, by, by, by eliciting their own memories, we brought them comfort. And the idea that you can comfort a family that's in pain, that you can actually bring the strength of wisdom at that moment was the most empowering thing in the world. That's when I said to myself, I think I can do this job, you know? I think I can do this. And you and Nina have been teaching rabbis at UJ, at AJU, the Ziegler School, for a very, very long time. Yeah. What's the one thing that you tell them that they need to no, know this, about being I, a rabbi? Right, so I teach, at AJU has a rabbinical school called Ziegler, and I've been teaching there since 1990. And for the last seven years, I've been the senior homiletics teacher, which is the class that Simon Greenberg taught you and me. I'm the ogre at the door. <laughs> I'm the last guy you have to get past in order to call yourself rabbi, you know? 
and I scare the hell out of him. Remember, remember the old John Wayne movies, you know, where John Wayne is the, the drill sergeant, you know? You're going to fear me more than you fear the Japanese, you know? <laughs> so I say that to them, you know, you'll hate me, but you won't, the board of directors won't be scary to you when I'm done with you. I tell them that the biggest skill of the rabbinate is not speaking. The biggest skill of the rabbinate is listening. Rabbis think that their ideas, they're supposed to come out and say powerful things. That's also true. But the most important skill that I learned was the skill of listening. To be able to listen to someone who comes to me in pain, listen to someone who's coming to me in confusion, listen to a situation that's complicated. And from listening, that's the greatest skill of the rabbinate. So as you listen to the larger Jewish community, what do you hear that is unheard by the establishment and the Jewish community? Um, that young people want in. Talk more about young that. people want to be one. Young people want something. Young but, people being twenty something. Yeah, but even younger, even teenagers. Yeah. That, that that what they're looking for in this culture is a sense of purpose. That there is a deep, deep, deep hunger for a sense of purpose in this culture. Like I said before, America gives us all of these liberties and all of these ability, all these possibilities, but what it doesn't give us is a powerful sense of why I'm alive, and that's what young people are looking for most. And when young people are presented with the opportunity to do something that possesses a sense of purpose and includes them, the, the language is a narrative that's bigger than themselves, they become very enthusiastic, become very excited. That's why birthright works. You know, all these billions of dollars have been, have been pumped into this program to take kids and send them to Israel. Because what, what they meet in Israel is a culture suffused with a sense of collective purpose, which you don't have here. You don't have here. Here it seems that the collective here purpose, being? here in America, here that American culture, I, without being too, you know, getting too critical, but I, lo I love America. I've grown up here and I love this, this culture, but American culture's sense of purpose is consumption. The mall is our public space. And the mall is a mercantile setting. It's a place to buy stuff. And the message of the mall is if you're missing something, buy a new outfit, buy some accessories, buy a new electronic toy. When you go to Israel, you sense that, that, what's, that, that the public space is not the mall. The public space is a political public space where there's a discussion going on about how one lives as a moral person in this world, a sense of collective purpose. And when we've taken young people and given them a chance to participate in projects of collective purpose, they become very enthusiastic. They become very excited. Now, translating, the, translating Jewish life into that language of collective purpose and of per personal meaning is what I've been talking about this, this, you know, all day yesterday. That's the new language of American Jewish life. So in that regard, Rick Warren here in Orange County, yeah, your friend, yeah. my friend, wrote this book, The Purpose Driven Life, number one selling uh, nonfiction book. Right, after the Bible. If you were <laughs> writing a Jewish purpose driven life, how do you think it would be different than that book written for Christians? I've, I've read that, I've, I've studied that book very carefully, and I've taken a lot from that book. And what I, have you taken from the book? Well, first of all, I've taken from the book the structure of the, of the church, the way he organizes the church in terms mm -hmm. of, in terms of uh, pathways. And so part of the way we've organized VBS, my synagogue, is on, on, that, on that pattern. But you know, I, I think the, the, the idea is, I think, I think the fundamental notion of a purpose-driven life is the right idea. The difference is that Jews don't speak his theological language. He's, the book begins by saying, it's not about you. That's the first line of the book, 
right? It's not about you. It's about God and serving God's purposes. That's a language Jews don't speak. Jews don't speak that language, right? When someone tells me, I'm coming to synagogue to commune with God, I know they weren't born Jewish. <laughs> no, it's true. I'm not, I'm no prejudice. God bless them. They should come to Shul. But that's, that's, not, that, that's a person, if a person says to me, I'm perfecting my prayer life, that person was not born Jewish, right? Jews don't come to shul to talk to God. Jews come to shul to talk to other Jews. God gets to overhear, right? <laughs> no, it's very true. Remember Harry Golden, the old Yiddish author, his son comes to him. He said, no, he went to his father and said, Papa, you're an atheist, but every Shabbos, you and Mr. Garfinkel go to shul. How come? He says, Garfinkel goes to talk to God. I go to talk to Garfinkel, right? But we go to shul to be with each other. God overhears. I wouldn't start the book by saying it's not about you, it's God's purposes. I would start the book by saying, you know, I would start the book by saying, you're needed. Remember that we said yesterday, right? You were put into the garden, the shamra ula'avda, to work and to tend and till God's garden. You are needed. I'm here to recruit you. Remember Harvey Milk? He's a great rabbi, right? <laughs> I'm here to recruit you. You're needed. You're needed. Everybody wants to feel that they're needed in the world. And that sense that there is a larger narrative of redemption that needs you. And you have a place in that world. This is, what I, this, is the, this is the language of personal meaning that Jews speak. So I'm the freshman who's just come back from my first semester of college. Yeah. I come to you, right. my rabbi. Yeah. And my problem is I don't believe in God. Yeah, good. You're not supposed to. Go ahead, Rabbi. No, you're not Explain that to me. No, How, why should I bother? Yeah. Why should I bother? I don't bother? want you to believe in God. I want you to but, go out. But why I should... want you to come with me on Sunday morning. We're going to the shelter. We're going to serve meals to the people in the shelter. But I don't have to do... Look, I'm in college now. Yeah, I, I, don't, I can I do that, that with a social action group. Then do why it. should then I... Then do it. Then do it. Don't talk why about it. Why should I do, do it, it with Hillel? You don't have to do it with Hillel. Just go do it. Just go do it. I, I'm not interested in that. I, I, for a college freshman... God is the farthest thing from his mind. <laughs> Girls are his mind. <laughs> but the question you're going to ask yourself at a certain point is this question. Right? You're going to go to the shelter, and you're going to serve meals, and you're going to see families who look just like your family, living in a shelter with nothing. And you're going to ask yourself, how can it be that a civilization as wealthy as this tolerates this kind of pain? How can it be that a civilization as well off puts up with this? And, and, and what, what good does it do for me to serve a meal today if tomorrow there's more others to replace them in the shelter? And the, 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 the belief in God comes only after, only after you have truly confronted your duty to address the brokenness of the world. The God we believe in is the guarantee that your efforts to address that brokenness in the world makes a difference. Makes a difference. Because you're going to come back to me and you're going to say, forget about God. Why should I help the poor? There's so many of them. The world is so broken. It is so terrifying. I am so brokenhearted. The problem is that most college freshmen have never confronted the true brokenness of the world. They've lived in lovely suburban neighborhoods. They've only met people who are on their same socioeconomic level, and they don't know just how broken the world is. When they go to Guatemala or El Salvador on an AJWS trip, or they go to South Central, to the middle of, a, of, a, of an urban ghetto in America, or they go and try to teach school in Compton, 
right? I don't know what bad neighborhoods you have in Orange County, Santa but I'm Anna. sure Santa Ana. And they come back to you and they say, Rabbi, why should I bother? I say, okay, now I'm going to tell you why it matters. And? And why the world is so constructed that your small effort to heal that one family makes a difference. That's what we call God. It is the texture, it is the fabric of relationships in the world that connects everything to everything else, that makes, makes certain that your effort matters, that your effort of kindness, that, your, that one single singular act of compassion matters. That's the belief. That's the, what it means to believe in God. Okay? It doesn't believe there's no God up there who's going to take care of it for you. It's an interesting thing, by the way. We don't pray, feed the poor. Look in the prayer book. You don't find that prayer. Fix, the po- fix poverty. Heal, heal all this disease. You don't do it. And by the way, any of you get sick, you don't recite to heal him. You go to a doctor. Even Orthodox people, by the way, very Orthodox ultra super terrifically orthodox people will recite Tehillim on their way to the doctor. <laughs> no one goes to, to does use Tehillim instead of a doctor. Isn't that interesting? Why do you recite Tehillim? Because you want to make sure that it matters. That you want to make sure that you want to remind yourself that you matter, that the doctor matters, that this encounter matters. So I'm suggesting that the belief in God is derivative. It's derivative of the human effort to heal the world. It is the guarantee that my efforts matter. There's a piece of me that I always keep looking at the clock because if I had the day, I would enjoy spending it with a conversation. And I'd want to ask you about Rabbi Harold Schulweiss, your mentor, who I know you've called the smartest man on the planet, and talk about no, not the just... the most, most courageous man on the planet. And the most courageous. And I know you're working on a doctoral dissertation on his life, and that's a separate conversation. I know David Hartman, Allah Shalom, who passed away this last year was very important to you. Last night you shared Abraham Joshua Heschel. Mm -hmm. Clearly his writings impacted on you profoundly. So because I'm watching the clock, we don't have a lot of time. One last question of theology, and that is in reference to Abraham Joshua Heschel. What's the one question you would ask him about God? <laughs> oh my. See, Heschel, um, the one question you would ask Heschel about God, that's a good question. Um, Heschel's notion was the only thing we know about God is that God cares. That's the only thing we know about God. So to believe in God is to believe that at the center of reality is caring. And that any time that we express caring, you have attached yourself to God. So the question you would ask about God is the question I just asked the kid. You know, um, <laughs> it's an interesting story. The question is, can we heal the world? Can we heal the world? Or is this, is this ultimately futile? That's the question you ask to God. And God's answer is, you're damn right you can heal the world. Now mm-hmm. get to work. Mm-hmm. Because that's what it means to believe. That's what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. Not to believe, to be human. Is there's no option. That's what you are. To, to, to who to, you are. To back away from that responsibility is to back away from the essence of your humanity, to fall into this trap of self-indulgence, which is to fundamentally be less than human. Which means that to be created in the image of God means fundamentally to, to care, care, regardless. To care. 
to care, endless caring. And the whole religious tradition, I would argue, this is me, not Heschel, although it comes from Heschel, the whole Jewish religious tradition is a superstructure to support the caring person. I say this to bar mitzvah kids every Shabbos. I said it again on Shabbos. I said, you're going to go into the world and you're going to meet the world's brokenness and it's going to break your heart and you're going to cry. And here's what you do. You come to shul, you wrap yourself in the talus that your parents just gave you and you make a prayer to God. And you don't say, God, heal the world for me. You say, God, give me the strength and the wisdom and the resolution and the courage to go back out there and heal the world for you. And I said to the kid, if you make that prayer, God will always answer that prayer. Mm. And say he may need. He always answers. And I have witnesses. And the reason I know this for sure is because I have witnesses. Because I've seen, I have friends in the world. You have friends in the world. A friend, one of my best friends in the world is a research scientist. I was once going to visit somebody in the hospital. I came out of the hospital 11 o'clock at night. He was going into his office. I said to him, what the hell are you doing? He says, oh, oh, I'm in the middle of the most wonderful thing. He's working on a project with 11 other scientists around the country to try to cure all the autoimmune diseases. So he sits in front of an electron microscope trying to find which of the 100 million proteins in the human body turns on and off the immune system. When he finds it, he'll win the Nobel Prize in medicine, and cancer and AIDS and all sorts of diseases will be cured. And, but the price of it is 11 o'clock at night when I'm going home to be with my family, he's going into his office. Why does he do that? Because he really believes that he can do it. And that's what he's here to do, mm. right? I have another friend who heals people who have become drug addicts and criminals. And he really believes he can heal broken souls. I've seen people, I, I have witnesses to their, to their goodness. And that, those witnesses are what I use, what, what sustains my faith. So if you're a computer support person or you're a lawyer doing real estate law, that's You're much going to hell. <laughs> so what? <laughs> I just want to make that clear. <laughs> so, so you know, you you you, you captured you captured you captured our hearts with those two stories, right? Of the guy who's going eleven o'clock at night to be God's God's messenger. God's messenger. Right. But not everybody does that. No. But Most people. But everybody right, they're has, the exception. But everybody has a moment during the week. So what do you want can, to say to them? Because they, that, that everyone has moments during the week when you can be God's messenger too. Everyone, every, all you need to do, but what you need to do is you need to think about yourself in, in a different narrative. That the story is not, I'm going to be successful by making all this money and then I'm going to really be somebody. Is I'm going to be successful by making all this money and using it to accomplish ends that would make God proud that God created me. The task of life is to become the self I most want to be. And the self I most want to be is a self with a circle of concern and care that is broad and wide and inclusive. And that can be done by anybody in all circumstances at all times. So at the Centennial in Baltimore, and I'll just say as an aside, that there was only one program chair at the 100th celebration of United Synagogues, which drew six times as many people as the last time two years before when they held it. And the one program chair in Baltimore was Ari Katz. Yay. And the most quoted, <laughs> and the most quoted presenter, the most quoted soundbite at the Centennial Convention was Rabbi Edward Feinstein. 
Rabbi of Valley Beth Shalom, Encino, California. And your quote was... It's in Mariv today, by the way. It's in Mariv. The front page of Mariv. It's continuing Mariv. to echo in, in, in Hebrew, different languages. In Hebrew. It, it is a story on the conservative movement, and they begin with my quote. Right? So talk about the quote and the content. So the, but I don't even know it, because I wasn't there. The house is on fire and we're quibbling, something right, like that. Right, so, but give it more context. Because that was it was a it was a little conversation it's about the standards simple. for conversion, it's right? Very, yeah, that was where the, that was the context. But the the, right. the the comment was much bigger. It was about the whole conference. So go ahead. Right. I have a saying that I I, I hold to very dearly: um, never underestimate the self-destructive capacity of the Jewish people. <laughs> never under you know you, if you read, for example, the Talmud about how the how the Second Temple was destroyed. The Temple was not destroyed because the Romans destroyed it. The temple was destroyed because we were fighting among ourselves while the Romans were breaking through the walls of Jerusalem, right? We have this nasty habit that when times get rough, we get rough on each other. And instead of taking a look at, the, taking, a look, taking a, a, an objective look at a situation and making definitive ideas and definitive plans, we tend to quibble. And we quibble about trivial things. And I get tired of that. I, that's why I live in California, because all of the national Jewish organizations are in New York, and as Tevia said, may God keep them far away from us, <laughs> right? I, and seriously, the, the politics of these national organizations, the politics that goes on in Jewish life is just something I can't deal with. I have a wonderful synagogue community and a wonderful Jewish community that is vibrant and alive and joyful, and that's what I, that's what I do in my life. So I come to a conference and I'm listening to these people quibbling with each other over whose authority is it to, to govern conversions? And I say, what are you, what's wrong with you people? What's with the house is on fire and you're quibbling? Stop it! We need to think in new terms. We need to tell a new story. We need to be bold. We need to be imaginative. We need to be deep. Stop this quibbling. So that was the context of the comment, and you know. I, so talk about the house the on fire. The conference was wonderful, I and mean, we did a great job. Except yeah. you put me at eleven o'clock at night. But other than and that, I was Charlie, at that session. That was Charlie. Eleven o'clock. That wasn't you. Uh, oh, okay. Right. Yeah, so no. You were, you were on three hour time difference. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. It was really, it was really uh, 8 o'clock. Right, yeah. So yeah. talk about the Jewish house and the fire. The Jewish house and the fire. Thank you. That's really nice. Just <laughs> 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 like put it on. Just to help put it out. Help put it out. Help put out the fire. <laughs> By the way, you want to show the shirt? Because the shirt. Yeah, yeah. Turn around. You got to turn around. But turn around so Eddie can see it. Yeah, and I've seen it. I have right. one. Right. So, after, yeah. because, because of his famous quote saying the house is burning down, I told Charlie, we'll turn it into a positive. So, I made a shirt that said, what did it say in the front? Uh, oh, pyromaniac rabbi. <laughs> and the eye had a match, but the back said, igniting passion for Judaism, right. as opposed to the house is burning down. And I said, oh, that's right. And we, we created that artwork. I was like, oh, we'll use it for CSP since I paid for it for the rabbis. That's very nice. Thank you. Thank you. What was the question? The question is, is <laughs> des describe the Jewish house as you see it today and the fire that's consuming it. The, the, the Jewish house, you know, if you read these reports and stuff, the, the, we, we have been given a gift of freedom in modernity, and we don't know yet what to do with it. 
And there's a race between our ingenuity in figuring out how to live in freedom and the demographic forces that are taking our children away. And I'm not sure we're going to win the race. That, that's the answer, basically. Um, we have more freedoms than any Jews have ever had in the history of the Jewish people, which includes a freedom to mix freely with the outside, which our children obviously take advantage of. And the question is, can we make a strong and compelling enough case to have them choose in? And, and my, my concern is that when we get distracted with institutional stuff, institutional quibbling and institutional politics, we're not doing the work of building a compelling adult Jewish experience. And that bothers me a lot. Um, that's what the context of that comment was. And I think we're in this great race. The question is, will we be sufficiently ingenious and sensitive and creative to build an American, an indigenous American Judaism that will, that will compel our children to choose in? You know, or will the forces of assimilation, of demographic assimilation, cultural assimilation, steal their commitments before we get a chance to do that? And I, I, you know, right now I don't know the answer to that question. The, the community loves to be pessimistic. There's still so many wonderful uh, initiatives going on in the community that I haven't given up yet. But that's, that's, the, that's the concern. That's the, that's the concern. And uh, you, know, you and I are part of those people, along with Ari and all of the people here, part of the people who believe we can create a compelling adult Jewish experience. There's something in this tradition which is of deep value. And there's a compelling religious sense that, as I said before, God isn't finished with us yet. There's stuff for us to do in this moment of culture. And there's things that we need to be saying to the world in this moment of our civilization. The question is whether we have the ingenuity to, uh, to, to fashion a way of articulating it that, get, that grabs the imagination of our kids. And we're trying. We're trying very hard. So I'm going to transition out of questions from the audience. And uh, knowing that I'll ask a question or two at the end to pull it together. Do, do you want to call on people? You, you call. You I'm, I'm, I'm happy just okay. sitting here quietly. So. I saw Amy first, but I defer to Polly and then Amy. Oh. <laughs> I have uh, four sons. You may want to stand, Polly. Only can everyone hear Polly in the back? <coughs> yes. Okay. Go ahead, Polly. I have four sons. Uh, I have seven grandchildren, and I have two great grandchildren. Some of them are intermarried, mm -hmm. and I've done some silly little things like having them call me Bubby so that I can explain that Bubby means grandma mm -hmm. in, in, in uh, Yiddish. Right. I've tried to connect them to my Jewishness so that some of it will overlap onto their lives. Good. But there are only so, so many things that, uh, that one can do, especially because my, gra my ch grandchildren live all over the country. They're yeah. not geographically close to me. Right. So I, my question is, what kinds of things would you suggest that I can do to keep them connected to their Jewishness? Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful question. And I can suggest a number of things. You ever hear, ever hear the question? Yeah. Yeah, so you know, I can certainly suggest a lot of things. But if you're looking for the formula, if you're looking for the magic formula, the magic incantation, it doesn't exist. It's too complex a problem. I mean, it's too complex a question of identity who we are, how we identify ourselves, what are our deep personal values and commitments. I, there's no singular formula in which, you know, I say, do this and everything will turn out Jewish. You know, and the answers I'm going to give you 
you're going to say, well, I know that already. I do that already. Right? The most important thing, Polly, the most important thing is what you already do. You testified to your children that being Jewish matters to you. You testified in the way you act. You testified in the way you live. You testified in the way you talk. You testified in the way that you participate in the community. That testimony, that personal affirmation, that witnessing, they call it in the Christian world, is a very powerful thing. And you don't know where it's going to end up. Because whereas your child might intermarry, the grandchild might say, you know, I really like Bubby. <laughs> I like Bubby's life. I, like, I, wanna, I want more of what she's got. And you never know where it's going to sort of redound. That's one of the pieces. Then there are symbols, things that one does as a symbolic gesture that, add, that amplify your own personal witnessing as to why this is meaningful. And those are the symbols of Jewish living. So to have a whiz-bang Pesach Seder. Now that means that when you think of your Pesach Seder, not only do you have to cook great food, right, or, or order in great food, but uh, you, you have to also imagine what's the experience of those kids at that Seder table. It can't be perfunctory. That means it just can't be, you know, wuz, wuz, wuz through the Haggadah. I want those kids to sit there and get so moved by that Seder that they're either yelling and screaming at each other or singing at the top of their lungs and having the most wonderful time and that your grandchildren, wherever they're going to be all over the world and whatever faith and traditions and cultures they're going to be attached to, would not think of doing anything else on Erev Pesach than being at your table. That Seder is so compelling it's going to bring them back. Okay, Hanukkah, bring them back. Yom Kippur, bring them back. I mean, though we create these moments of experience that kids say, I, I don't want to lose that, whatever culture I'm in. And, 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 and that plus the fact that their spouses and, and, and partners and significant others who, who may come from other faiths and cultures are going to say, this is what I want to have. I'll just give you a, an example. The woman who died in my synagogue a couple of weeks ago um, months ago, a woman who was very active in the show, 96 years old, named Muriel, lovely, lovely, beautiful lady. She has two daughters, both of whom married Jewish men, five grandchildren. You ready? Ready for this? Five grandchildren. Grandchild number one, right, is a lesbian living with her lover and her two children somewhere in the Northwest. Grandchild number two is married to an African-American fellow and they have two kids. Grandchild number three, um, is living with his African American, no, living with his Latino girlfriend who is pregnant with their first child. They're not married yet, or married at all, right? Grandchild number four is one of these goth kids, you know, black hair, white skin, piercings, tattoos, gay face. You know, how you get through a metal detector, I don't know. <laughs> and grandchild number four, the five, is a, is a high school kid who's not quite sure who she is. They all come to the gravesite, and they're all weeping because Bubby died. And, and of all of them, you know who was the most touched? The African-American son-in-law. He says to me, he says to me, show me how to say Kaddish for Bubby. I say, are you Jewish? He said, no, 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 I was raised Southern Baptist, African-American. He says, but this is the prayer that meant the most to her. And she once asked me if I would do it for her, and I loved her. Teach me how to say Kaddish for Bubby. How do you, you see, so you've you got to create moments of touching, and you never know where they're going to end up. So I wish I could tell you here's a simple formula, but that's really the way it's done. It's sort of the way it's always been done. And it starts with your personal commitment and your personal question, your personal witnessing, your personal testimony. Okay? Thank you. Thank you. Amy and then Andy. 
Amy. My question is, as a leader, as a rabbi and a leader of the Jewish people, how do you personally guard yourself from negativity and criticism that might come to you and remain approachable and let your light shine? Alcohol helps. <laughs> <laughs> you know the line in the Kiddush that says, Kihu Yom Tequila? <laughs> I observe that literally. Uh, God is my patron, you know. The answer is, I'm a student of Jewish history. And I know we are very old people. And as a student of Jewish history, I know where we have been and under what circumstances we have been. And what is amazing to me about Jewish history, the story of Jewish history, is the ability of this people to reinvent itself over and over and over again. There is a deep inner resilience to this culture, to this people. There is a deep inner resilience to its, to, to its, its way of looking at the world. And the, the, to me, the great miracle, if you can speak that language of Jewish history, is that resilience and its capacity to reinvent itself. And what I understand right now is that we are going through a period of reinvention. The synagogue that Ellie leads, the synagogue that I lead, is nothing like the synagogue my great-grandfather led. My great-grandfather was a Lithuanian rabbi in Kenosha, Wisconsin. My synagogue, he would not recognize my shul. He did not have a Tai Chi class in the synagogue the way we do at 7 o'clock in the morning. He did not have a meditation minion or a women's minion or a, or a social action crew. But then, then I also know that the synagogue that my children, and God willing, one day off, please, my grandchildren will celebrate, is going to be very different than the one that I'm doing now. We are in the process of reinventing, and that is also the story of the Jewish people. We are not only a story, it's another lecture, you'll invite me back another time, I'll hit three. But we are not only a people who celebrate our continuity, we are also a people that celebrates our discontinuity. And that at certain moments of Jewish history, we have been faced by circumstances, external and sometimes internal, that forced us to reinvent Jewishness, to reinterpret the message of the Jewish people, to reimagine the mission of the Jewish people, and to reorganize the institutions of Jewish life. This is not, this is not unusual. This is part of the history of the Jewish people. And this is what we're going through now. This is what we're, now it's painful as heck because you, can't, you don't know what to expect. You don't know what to expect. And, and, and you come to synagogue expecting something which is you know, reassuring and traditional, and the rabbi says, we're gonna try something new today. And you go, oh, not again. You know? and, and, and institutions like federation and family services and these institutions that have been the mainstay of Jewish life are gonna be changing, reorganizing, reimagining, and new institutions will come and take their place, but that is what we're going through, and that is the lesson of Jewish history. So every time I get down, and I do frequently, right, the, 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 the answer is look back at your history and understand that this is your history. It is a history of reinvention and reimagination and repurposing, recycling. Andy and then Lowell. And then Dahlia. Given the mall and consumer society that you talked about and the overwhelming brokenness here, how do you deal with college kids outside of birthright and talk about the importance of Israel when 
it's easy to say they have enough Mishigas that we don't need that. Yeah. Um, so the, you ever hear the question? Yeah. All right, so repeat it because we're taping. Though the question is, uh, sorry, the question is, uh, given the culture we live in, we have college kids, and 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 how do you articulate the importance of Israel yeah. for college kids? Yeah. Um, here's what's interesting. You want to know what's interesting? Can we talk to Dugri for a minute? Ready? If you go into any synagogue in America, Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, and you stand up in the middle of the service and you declare that you don't believe in God, that you don't believe in prayer, that you don't think the Torah is true, nothing will happen to you. <laughs> Except the little lady behind you will say, sit down, I want to watch the Bar Mitzvah kid. <laughs> you go into almost any synagogue in America and you, don't, you declare, I don't believe in the state of Israel. I don't believe there should be a Jewish state in the Middle East. They'll kill you before you reach the door. <laughs> Seriously. Israel has become the central tenet of our identity. The, cent the one thing, the line we draw on, you can believe in anything you want and still call yourself a Jew, or nothing at all, and call you can eat whatever you want and call yourself a Jew. You can do Shabbos, you cannot do Shabbos, and everybody's fine with that, but you declare that you don't believe in Israel, and they, not, they write you out of the Jewish people. It's a really interesting fact of our community. Now, here's the, here's the paradox. Ask those same people, why Israel? Why Israel is so important to us? And people have a very hard time articulating an answer. Well, it's a homeland, but you live in America. Well, it's a place for Jews to go. You really think it's safer than America? <laughs> you, you really think that Tel Aviv is a safer city for Jews than Vancouver? Really? Right? Well, it's, and people have a hard time articulating. There, there is a deep sense of connection to Israel and pride in Israel, but a very hard time articulating why. And that's what college kids know. They know that their parents are somehow connected to Israel, value Israel, love Israel, but they can't tell why. And the, ki and the kids, that paradox is where the kids end up. Okay, that's where the kids end up. So then you, know, then you say something like, well, Israel is the articulation of our values. And they say, yes, but Israel has done some things politically which don't seem very Jewish to me. Okay? You see, and that's where you get the political discussion. But not all kids are, 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 are critical of Israel for its politics. But, they're, but they're, they know that, they, that while their parents value Israel, their parents can't articulate a reason. I told Polly before that she has to witness to her kids why being Jewish is important. You have to witness to your kids why Israel is important. Why is Israel important? Why does it matter that Israel lives or dies? Why is its prosperity and its security important to you? If you can articulate that, if you can articulate that, then your kids will be on board. But as long as you can articulate that, just expecting them to feel that way isn't enough. That's number one. Number two, we have to welcome into our community a new kind of Zionist. My parents are labor Zionists. My parents were kibbutzniks, right? I grew up as a sort of cultural Zionist. I happen to love Israel as a Jewish place, as a Jewish public space where Jewish values are visible and where Jewish life is debated. My kids are critical Zionists, critical Zionists. They are very critical of the state of Israel's policies. They have a deep sense of connection with Israel because they, they adopted my cultural Zionism, but they're very critical of the Netanyahu government and of its policies. 
So my, my deal with my kids, my kids meaning not just my personal children, but the children of my shul, here's my deal. When Israel does something that they believe violates Jewish values, they have a right and an obligation to speak up. But when people rag on Israel and draw down Israel and demand that Israel disappear from the planet for morally questionable reasoning, they have to speak up as a character witness for Israel. They have to speak up. For, so I don't mind somebody as a passionate lover of Israel who's critical of the Netanyahu government. But they, but they have to be a character witness to one side of their debate, and they have to be a critical witness to the other. And that's the place, I think, that young Zionists find themselves. Okay? So I happen to be very active in APAC. I'm very active in APAC because it's my perception that the state of Israel exists for two reasons. One, the resilience of its people, and two, the support and protection of the United States of America. And I, be, I love Israel, and I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that both of those things go on. So I help the resilience of Israel by visiting every year. I was there during, Nina and I were there during the Intifada. If I tell you we were the only tourists in the country, I'm not exaggerating. Literally, literally, in the summer of 2002, we were in Israel. And I'm not exaggerating, she's here to test it. We went to Masada, we had our kids with us. We went up to Masada. There were nine tourists on a Friday morning on Masada. The four of us, right, four Swiss tourists, Christians, and their tour guide. Nine people on the whole hill. My, we went into the King David Hotel because another family came from our neighborhood. And the kids played touch football with a pillow in the lobby of the King David Hotel. I'm not kidding, the Wylands were there, right, right? And, and they played touch football. And, and I went to the concierge and I said, listen, I'm really sorry for my kids. He said, no, 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 no. It's wonderful having children in the hotel. He said, let them play. I mean, honest to God, the guy said, let them play. He said, it's so good to hear kids yelling. He said, we've missed it. We've missed it so good. And I went to Israel and I decided what I'm going to do in Israel is I'm going to wear the loudest, ugliest Hawaiian shirts I can. And I went into the supermarket, and I talked pretty good Hebrew, but I put on my worst Houston, Texas Hebrew. Slicha! Yes, lachem, change for a 20! Because I wanted every Israeli in that supermarket to go home and say, there was an American in the market. And they don't say, there's an American in the country? I figured if I showed up in lots of places, they'd think there are more of us there. We are partially responsible for protecting and maintaining the resilience of Israel's people because we have to remind them that their story is our story. And if they're going to have to go and stand on lines and face Hezbollah, we better damn well tell them that we love them for it. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece of it is we have to protect the alliance between America and Israel. And you may argue with my politics, but and I argue with APAC's politics all the time, inside. But I'm really proud that the strongest lobby in Washington is ours. I'm proud that Congress is afraid of us. It doesn't give me, it doesn't, it doesn't worry me that people think that there's Jewish conspiracies. Good, let them be afraid of Jewish conspiracies. <laughs> in the meantime, every year Congress votes three billion with a B dollars to Israel in protection, right? And sends over a couple more of those Iron Dome systems. And that's because of one thing. 
I'm going to speak next week at the yeah, well, Sunday dinner. night. So there's only one reason we do that. It's not because they love Israel, because it's a democracy and its values are good and its story's wonderful. My congressman votes for Israel for a singular reason, because if he didn't, I would call his mother. His <laughs> mother belongs to my shul. If my congressman voted against Israel, he would lose his aliyah on Yontif. He knows it, too. I'd call his wife. I married them. But the, a congressman in Nebraska or Idaho or Utah votes for Israel for a singular reason, because we asked them to. And I support AIPAC because it's the way that we ask them to. And again, you can argue with my politics. That's fine. I also have friends in J Street. I have friends on the left. I have friends on the right. But I think that there are certain bottom lines to the self-defense of the Jewish people today, and that's what it is. So I explained to my kids, like, the answer is, I explained to them why I love Israel, and then I explained to them, here's what you need to, you can be a critical Zionist. So two closing questions from the audience, and I'll pull it together with Eddie. Uh, we're gonna take the questions together okay. for you to answer them together. Lowell, and then Dahlia. I uh, enjoyed the week. So I'll reframe Lowell's question, Dahlia, your question. It dovetails beautifully with his. I strongly believe in God, and I always have. And I have a husband who's an agnostic and a son who is 21 and an atheist. Um, all all 21-year-olds. All 21-year-olds. <laughs> and a 16-year-old who's not, okay? So, but my question is, you mentioned that your faith in God, your belief in God is that you very Jewish. You do, and then the faith comes after, that, you, that we have a purpose, that we have a meaning, and that we don't go to shul to connect with God. What I'm here to tell you is that, I'm not, you know, my father's a conservative rabbi, I do go to shul to connect with God. I've, even since I was a little kid, my Jewish, very Jewish upbringing, mm -hmm. I would always read Tehillim, I would always go to the back of the Siddur, um, that I have a very personal connection, mm -hmm. uh, and that I do daven and say, please God, help me be a better person, help me do what it is you brought me into the world to do. Mm -hmm. So. You know, I sort of cringe because sometimes I hear people say, oh, Christians have a personal God, but Jews don't. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, and there's a lot in our tradition that is very personal. Mm -hmm. And your question? So my question is, how can you, you say that that's not the case, and I, I, no, I no, not disagree. No, no, not the case. Okay, fine. So let me, let me reframe. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. Let me reframe Lowell and Dahlia because they, they dovetail. Yeah. And that is, Lowell and Dahlia represents the two endpoints of a theology. One, where there is no God, but profound sense of Jewish connection. The other, I'm drawn to synagogue to pray to a personal God. This is your constituency. How do you as the rabbi let both feel meaning in your synagogue? Yeah, no, listen, I, 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 I'm, God bless both of you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think God has a wonderful time with this mishpacha, you know. I think God has a wonderful time with this mishpacha. Um, <laughs> the other day was the uh, the 20th anniversary of the Northridge earthquake, 
So uh, that the North, it was called the Northridge earthquake. Y'all heard about that? Yeah, was that was a lie. It was actually under our kitchen in Granada Hills. <laughs> At 4.32 in the morning, our house jumped 10 feet in the air. Um, it was the scariest thing you've ever been through. And all of a sudden, my wife and I had a beautiful panoramic view of the North San Fernando Valley, where the back wall of the bedroom used to be, right? <laughs> you know, and, and it was quite remarkable. Like, this house, like, really was remarkable. Everything fell, everything broke, everything was damaged, and the aftershocks kept rumbling through it. A couple days later, the city came and red-tagged the house, and we had 48 hours to move out of the house. And about five, six weeks later, the insurance company came. We had insurance, State Farm. They sent this lovely young man from Kansas City. He was a structural engineer. He spent five hours surveying the house. And then he sits down with Nina and me and he says, okay, let's talk about personal belongings that you lost. Let's go room by room. Let's start in the kitchen. So we said, good. We lost five sets. We lost six, set, six sets of dishes. <laughs> he puts his pencil down. He says, you did not lose. <laughs> He said, oh, damn well we did. He says, okay, what are they? We said, okay, Milchik's Fleischik's, Shabbos Fleischik's, Pesach Milchik's, Pesach Fleischik's, Shabbos Pesach Fleischik's. He says, how do y'all spell Shabbos Pesach Fleischik's? <laughs> <laughs> you know. so, so he finishes and he says, okay, now, now why do y'all have six sets of dishes? And we said, because we're a very religious family. He said, woo-wee, for a religious family, your house took a hell of a beating. <laughs> And the funny thing was, we were on the corner lot and an earthquake goes in a sine wave. So our house got creamed. Right next door lived one of the biggest pornography distributors in the world. <laughs> Mr. Tuchus and Toots. I mean, Satskalach. I mean, and, 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 and his house, like, not a teacup. <laughs> so the guy said, I thought the Lord was your shepherd or something. And I played with him a while and I said, he is. He sent me State Farm Insurance. <laughs> I said, touche, you know. I would like to believe in a God who reaches out of heaven and cares for the righteous and the good. I really would. I was once getting on an airplane and a lady sees me in the, you know, the waiting area, waiting to get on the plane, and she said, Rabbi, you're Rabbi Feinstein, right? I said, yeah, you're on this flight? I said, yeah, she said, oh, I feel so much better. <laughs> I said, honey, you want Sullenberger, not Feinstein. <laughs> This sucker goes down. I, all I can do is recite Kaddish for you. I don't know how to fuck I really want to believe in that God. I just haven't found that God in my experience. I don't believe in that. No, no, but I'm going to tell you. Yeah. You wanted to ask my question, right? The God that I found in my experience, really, um, you know, in, in the course of my life, the, the question that I think God comes to answer is the question at the heart of the universe, is the heart of the universe cold and dark and empty? And life is a happy biochemical accident? Or is the heart of the universe, the core of reality, ultimately about life? And we are an expression of that life. And there are experiences on each side to teach you one or the other. And I've come to believe, number one, that I do believe that the heart of the world is life. And number two, that not only do I believe in that, but I want to believe in that. Because I think that's the assurance that my efforts to heal the world matter. If you gave charity and you found out that the charity you were giving to was crooked, 
that they were stealing the money and wasting it, you'd stop giving the charity. But you care for the world and you give of yourselves to heal the world. How do you know that the efforts that you put into the world matter? You know because you have some deep unarticulated belief that somehow it matters. That giving a few dollars to a tzedakah, that giving a few, that giving of your time to a charity, that helping the world makes a difference in some small way that somehow accumulates and adds up to some big tidal wave of goodness in the world. You believe in that. See, with due, due respect, even people who say, I'm an atheist. So I ask them, you give charity. And they say, yes. I say, well, then you're a believer. Because you at least believe in the efficacy of your acts. And that's not, a, that's not an empirical fact. That's not a rational fact. That's a belief. That's a faith statement that my acts matter. Now, when you start to articulate and work out, how is it that my acts matter? That's where you end up with an idea of God. And as I said before, we're going to imagine God in the guise of the people who taught us about this. And some of us imagine a personal God you know, who, is, who has a face and talks to us and cares for us. And others of us imagine a God who is more of a principle, a power, a, a process. There are different metaphors for this. Heschel, my teacher, says it doesn't matter. What matters is that you understand that at the heart of that is caring. That's what matters most. Because the proof of a theology is not your ability to articulate it and say, have people go, ooh, now I believe. The proof of your theology is what kind of life you live. Heschel once asked the following question. If the Torah says you're not allowed to make an image of God, it says that in the second commandment. We read it yesterday. The human being, according to the Torah, is created in the image of God. So did God violate his own commandment? And the answer is, you're not allowed to make an image of God out of anything you find in the world because there's only one material out of which you can construct an image of God, and that is the whole human life. A whole human life is the material out of which you create an image of God. To me, I, I'm, I'm interested, I'm fascinated, I love interviewing people and listening to their ideas about God and the variety of their ideas about God. In, in the end, that's great. You know what really matters to me? What kind of life a person lives? A person says, I believe in God, wonderful. What difference does it make? What difference does it make in the way that you spend your money? What difference does it make in the way that you treat the people you work for? You want to know if a person believes in God? Look at how they treat their maid. Look at how they talk to the gardener. Remember we talked before? Invisible people, right? We were slaves in Egypt and we were turned invisible. Remember the widow? With the, don't take the widow's garment in pawn. The, the, the way that you know a person believes in God is the way they talk to their, to their undocumented Latino maid. Because that tells you whether they really do understand that caring is what makes me who I am. And that it matters that this woman is treated with dignity and respect. So to me, I love the stories. I believe, I don't believe, but I'm more interested in what you do than what you believe. At this moment in our history, and this moment of our civilization, that is a greater proof of the existence of God. I know that God exists not because of proofs. I know that God exists because my dear friend goes into his lab every night. And he fights for health. And he fights for strength. I'm alive today. 
because people found medicines that, that attacked the diseases that, that attacked my body. I, I wrote a letter to the guys that invented the CAT scan machine. These two engineers from Lucent Engineering, I found out who they were. I wrote them a letter. I said, your machine saved my life twice. I want to thank you. Right? I just want, I said, you know. Did they write back? No. <laughs> but I bought stock in the company. <laughs> God. So, so the point is, so I, I'm delighted that you believe or don't believe. I'm more interested in how you behave. To me, that's the proof of God's existence. So I would pull this together at this point, except for being trumped. One, trumped by my wife's instruction. And she instructed me that next to her is Rabbi Bieber, Nina, and that she had a question for Eddie. So I just asked her for... <laughs> what? Not a question, a uh, statement about God. Oh, a statement, oh, a statement about God. Then, then go ahead and... and uh, do you have a question for Eddie? Only that her belief in God is different than her husband. So go ahead. I want to hear that. So I just want to underscore that. That jewelry is the other thing. <laughs> one of us is deeply committed to the acquisition of jewelry. <laughs> the other one is deeply fearful of that. <laughs> and this afternoon, we're going to have a test of faith. <laughs> we're walking back into Laguna to see what's To there. see if Nina's going to buy jewelry. Right. No. <laughs> so closing question, I'm going to say a word to pull our conversation together. And then, of course, Ari will pull our gathering together. The book you're writing now is called Chutzpah. The three rabbis. Is the that's the Hebrew. See, he didn't grow up speaking Yiddish. See, Chutzpah is the Hebrew version of the word. Chutzpah! Right. <laughs> the Yiddish and, version. And the rabbis that you share that have so shaped you, I want to give, some, give credit to Yitz Greenberg. Yeah, David Hartman. To, to David Harold Hartman. Schoolies, right. And Harold Schulweis. They're my teachers. So, courage is at the core of a religious model for you. Yeah. Closing comment about what courage the Jewish community needs now. The courage to be able to, the courage to change and to articulate a new narrative to our children. A narrative of personal meaning, a narrative of purpose, a narrative of spirituality, uh, a new narrative, and not to be afraid of that. So a closing, comment for me to pull it together. First, I want to share, because I, I thought that Nina was going to ask a question, which I still, that would still be fun, to, <laughs> publicly to ask, you know, Eddie something. Last chance. When are you coming home? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the question for the family of the rabbi. So I, I will share that I had the, I asked because I was going to call on. We went through a parody of Fiddler on the Roof. We went to a parody fiddler on the roof, and, and the woman who played Nina sang the song, going, 
Do you come home? <laughs> I said, do I what? <laughs> do you go home? Do I go home? With a youth group and the youth lounge and men's club and the shul. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so I went over to ask Nina for permission to share something she shared with me walking yesterday. And that is, I said, I said to her, so how did you meet Eddie? She said, I was 12 and he was 14. And I had a boyfriend who was 14 who was, as it would turn out, Eddie's close friend. And he took me to a USY gathering and Eddie was speaking. And as a four, he was 14. I never heard anybody speak like that. Right. And we've been together ever since. Well, the story is, Nina's father was in the outdoor lighting business. Um, he did parking lots and then he did, later did tennis courts. But he, he lit up a Baskin-Robbins franchise, and the guy didn't have money to pay him, so he paid him in Baskin-Robbins. And so her father had a deal. He told all of us in USY, we were kids in a youth group, that anytime you want ice cream, especially late at night, come over. Now my house, there was always ice cream, and the, it was, as long as it was chocolate, right? But they had interesting flavors. They had, you know, fudge ripple, and they had uh, peppermint chip, and blueberry, and God knows. So at 11.30 one night, we finished a USY meeting, and the friends I was with said, let's go to the Beavers, there's ice cream. And we went to the house and knocked on the door, and Herbie said, come on in, boys, I'll get you some ice cream, and I'll go wake up the girls. <laughs> so our romance has a whole lot to do with ice cream today. <laughs> I fell in love with Nina, and I fell in love with peppermint swirl ice cream. <laughs> so I started off our conversation by focusing on the name Yitzchak, and Yitzchak Moshe. And I shared earlier with Eddie that I, when I bless a bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, like to use Hebrew names, because for me at least, there's a, a play that feels uh, more profound in terms of an outer name and an inner name. You know, Eddie's name Yitzchak means he shall laugh. And when I first watched Eddie at Camp Ramah and to meet him at first impression, is to be struck by his ability to laugh. And on some level, to be a facilitator for others. That was the role of Yitzchak. But there's an inner core of Moshe, of leadership. And it's more than coincidence that the sound bite that's continued to resonate from the centennial is attached to your name for indeed in my community of rabbis, among those I look to as Moshe, as somebody with the courage in his own community at VBS to model a model community, um, Eddie is my man. And so indeed you bless us by your presence of reminding us that to believe that the world is good is to see the world through God's eyes but more, to know that when we are good, that's when we encounter the God in us. Thank you. <laughs>